Let's pray before we dive in this morning. Ask God for his help. Father, we have a book you've given us. It has told us who you are and who we are. You've told us about yourself and you've told us about our, ourselves. And uh, we're so grateful that we've been left with the revelation. And yet we know that there are ways in which we distort. We see people taking um, passages of scripture and turning them upside down, inside out or just erasing them. And so when we come to a time like this and I or others teach, I am mindful of the grave responsibility. And there's no, it's no wonder that the scripture says that those of us who teach will encounter the stricter judgment. So I pray, Lord, that I would be faithful uh, this morning in what I teach. I pray that those who are here would be wise and discerning but as we have talked these last number of weeks about um, agreeable disagreement, um, we, we are mindful that that's not typically what happens today. And that as followers of Jesus Christ, we desperately need some help in how to do that. We even need help in being willing to go to those who are going to instinctively disagree with us because we follow you. And so I pray for our time this morning that the Holy Spirit would ultimately be our teacher, that the enemy would be bound, and that you would be made much of, that you'd be exalted and glorified, and that our hope would increase, not just in our salvation, but that the outworking of our salvation into this world through us as your servants can be done, that we can have an impact, that it's, it's still possible today to talk to people who are perhaps very adversarial to us and see them transformed, not because we're so smart, not because we've memorized so much, but because Christ lives in us. For the glory of God, we pray. Amen. Anybody here live in the great state of Michigan for any period of time? Janet Ash, I know Janet. Anybody else? Nobody. Um, do you know that the state of Michigan is made up of two peninsulas? How many know that at least? Okay. Um, Betty and I lived in uh, Michigan, our family lived in Michigan for two years. I pastored a church up there when I first got out of seminary, and I didn't know that. I, I knew that Michigan look, you know, looks like this. It looks like a hand if you uh, look on a map of the U.S., but there's a piece up top, too, that goes horizontally. It's called the... Upper Peninsula, or short, UP. And the people who live there are called, anybody know? Jan, can you help us out? You don't know? Upers. U-P-ers. Got it? Upers. So um, I found out when I was living in the lower portion of, the, of Michigan that the people on the Upper Peninsula think, that the people who live in the lower peninsula are strange. They would actually call us trolls. Do you know why? There's a bridge that connects the upper peninsula with the lower peninsula, about five miles span, Mackinac Bridge. And so people who lived below the bridge 
are trolls. Now, we kind of had the same opinion about the people that lived above the bridge. Very strange individuals. Um, basically, the youpers are, um, they hunt, they fish, they drink, and they shovel snow. Uh, we, used to have the, we used to have the kind of rather macabre joke that the number one industry in the Upper Peninsula was alcoholism. And unfortunately, there's some truth to that. Not a lot of, uh, not much in the way of jobs up there. Used to be mining and forestry, and then the mines uh, petered out late 90s, the last one closed. And it's a, it's a tough place to live, but the people there are, are very um, fond of their unique way of life, which involves a lot of snow. Uh, a friend of mine has a vacation home up there that um, he plans to retire to in another year or two. He, he was born and raised in the Upper Peninsula, and he, he said it's nothing for them to have 350 to 400 inches of snow a year. Now, you know, people sometimes ask me, does God ever speak to you? And I say, yeah, if I'm a place where there's 400 inches of snow, God has spoken. Go south, young man. That's just insane. Um, but but we, <clears throat> the, the people up there have their own unique uh, way of thinking and living. And I had, I, Betty and I were, uh, we drove across the UP in 2015. It was our first, even though we'd lived up there for a while, we'd never gotten up there. And uh, this is a little book that says, you know you're a youper when. And so I have some things to share here with me. You know you're a youper when you know which leaves in the woods make good toilet paper. You know you're a youper when you go swimming in July and draw straws to see who will jump in the lake first to break the ice. And this is for you hunters. Uh, you know you're a youper when you consider uh, deer one of the five seasons of the year. Spring, summer, fall, deer, winter. And do you know you're a youper when your town has as many bars as churches? And that, unfortunately, is true as well. A lot of fun. But people on one side of the bridge see the folks on the other side of the bridge differently. Last Sunday, we talked about this metaphor for the first time, about going on the other side of the bridge. We talked about what it's like for some of us as Christians who live, uh, as it were, kind of in a, in, a, in a fortress, and we have a high wall, and we have a fence, and maybe beyond the fence, we have a moat. And we want to keep those people out there who don't know Jesus and who aren't like us and who disagree with us. We want to keep them out there, and we want to keep us in there, and we want to keep away from them. And yet, God wants us to cross the bridge, to go out to where they are. Uh, perhaps as we started this conversation about agreeable disagreement, you were hoping that you would find a few tips about how you could get along with that contrary person at work. And uh, hopefully I'll give you a couple of those today. But I've I've tried to wrap it in the context of us as Christians going out to across the bridge to people that are very different from us. Because what I find um, tragic this, in this season of our life in the United States of America is that some of us who claim to know Jesus Christ 
are simply shouting at people out there who disagree with us. And, and we're, we're failing to do the very thing that Jesus himself did with us and the thing that Jesus called us to do with those folks out there. So I'd like if you'd turn with me to John chapter 1 and <clears throat> talk this morning about life across the bridge. John chapter 1. And the Apostle John uh, writes about John the Baptist, and those are two different people, in the uh, early part here, a couple of verses, and then he begins to talk about Jesus in John 1, verse 9. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. And so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. The Apostle John continues, from his abundance we have all received gracious blessing, uh, received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Now, I want to pull two points out of this that describe what Jesus did and I think describe what he calls us to do as well. The first one is that Jesus pitched his tent among strangers. Jesus pitched his tent among strangers, and he asks us to do that as well. And there would have been, there's, there's no, there, there's no two, peop, uh, two people that would be more dissimilar than God the Son and all of humanity. God the perfect one and all of the imperfects of humanity. The people that live below the bridge and live above the bridge in Michigan are, are they're different, but they're very much, very much alike. When you think about the contrast between Jesus, perfect Jesus, and imperfect people. Jesus, who had his father's desires perfectly in mind and was 100% committed to keeping uh, those, carrying out those desires. And us, who waffle between trying to say yes to God and saying no so many times. How different it is. Back when the uh, debate about immigration really began in earnest in our country, you might have seen some lawn signs pop up here and there that, says Jesus, that said Jesus was an immigrant. And that is absolutely true in the truest sense of the word immigrant. Defined immigrant means a person who leaves their own homeland and goes to live permanently in another country. And that's exactly what Jesus did. You think about the home that Jesus enjoyed in heaven with his father and all the adulation of the angels and everything there was exactly the way God the Father wanted it to be. 
and then he comes to this place and he's all in he didn't have a backup plan that's that said okay if i'm treated well i'll stay if i'm treated badly i'm going to go back to the father he was all in right up to and including the moment of death he came here he he no no plan b no backup plan he was the immigrant of immigrants and the distinctions between him and the people that he came to could not have been more different. And make no mistake about it, this is exactly the sort of thing that Jesus calls each one of us to as well. It simply will not do for us to say, I'm going to try to be a good person, a holy person, and make God happy, but staying within the confines of my own, my own people and the folks that think like I do. We are not, we're not permitted to stay on this side of the bridge. In Hebrews 13, 13 and 14, it says this. So let us go out to him, that is Jesus. So let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace that he bore. Now Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem because that's what they would do with the criminals. You couldn't, you couldn't put the criminals to death inside the wall. That would defile the people. You had to kill them outside of the wall. And so Jesus, who was disgraced through his entire ministry life, was ultimately disgraced by the death that he bore outside the camp. And the writer of the Hebrews says that too is our call. It's not to hang around inside the camp. We go outside the camp, bear the disgrace that he's bore, he bore, and then the writer goes on to say in verse 14, we do this because this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. In other words, I, I don't know about you, but I love to make my home exactly the way I want it. I want the colors to be right. I want the layout of the furniture to be right. If you were here the other week, you, you know about that. Uh, I, 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 want the, I want the flooring to be just right. Betty and I clash about whether we redo the hardwood floors or put carpet over them. I'm like... The hardwood floors are there for a purpose. God intended them to be there. I, I want my home to be just right. I want to have the furnishings just the way I want them. I, I, I want things laid out properly. I want, I, want to have all the, uh, I want to have all the things that I can enjoy. And I love my home. And I probably love it too much. And you probably do too. Because we, we want this to be comfortable. And I don't believe that Jesus ever told us, I want you to get comfortable in this world. I want you to come outside the camp with me, where the people are that need me. Because I want you to carry me to those people across the bridge. Like, it's really not comfortable for me to have people that don't like Jesus into my home. I don't really care, Jesus says, if, about your comfort. I didn't care about mine when I came to you, and I don't care about you. I want you to go to those people. I saved you to send you. I saved you to send you. He didn't just die to save us. He died to have us join him on the other side of the bridge. We have some folks here that run with the ambulance, uh, Gordonville Ambulance. <clears throat> and when they serve on their shift, they are at the fire hall, Gordonville Fire Hall, 
It doesn't matter whether or not they have a, they have a call during that time or not. They are, they're there. Why? They're ready at a moment's notice to serve. And God has asked us to be pre-positioned as well in this culture to be ready to serve him and his purposes at a moment's notice for these people that Jesus died for. Make no mistake about it. If you are born again by the Spirit of God, you have said yes to Jesus Christ, you are on call for him. It's not just about being comfortable. Pitching your tent among strangers is what Jesus did and what he calls us to do. And as we are there among these folks, we come having packed a bag full of love. Jesus came to us as this stranger, it says, verse 14, that he made his home among us. And that it says he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And that means both to the people that received him and the people that didn't. It says in verse 10, he came to the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. There was no welcome party for him. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. Verse 12 but, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. So there were some who said yes to Jesus and there were some who said no to Jesus. And Jesus had love for them all. One of the, my favorite passages is the story about Jesus and the rich young ruler that came to him and said, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he said, yeah, I've kept them ever since I was a, a, a boy. And he thinks, I, I have already accomplished what I need to accomplish. Jesus says, one thing you lack yet. Go and sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor. Now I'm back to my house and my comfort. Go sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor that you make from all, selling all your stuff. And then come follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. And it says the man walked away sad, depressed, because he had a lot of stuff. And Jesus could have asked him to do just about anything else, and he would have done it. But I wanted to be able to take my stuff and my comfort with me. Here's the line that I want to point out to you. As this man is walking away, saying no to Jesus, it says it. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I'd love the people that would say, oh, Keith, I like what you've shared with me. I want to trust Jesus. Or would say, uh, you've convinced me I, I, I shouldn't be in favor of abortion. You've convinced me this is wrong. You've convinced me this is right. Jesus looks at the people that rejected him. And just as much as those who accepted him, I love you. This is the pattern that Jesus wants us to take across the bridge into the world that he died for. And I want to give you four basic um, ways in which we can love the people that are on the other side of the bridge. They all start with L. So hopefully they'll be easy for us to remember. The first one's the basic one that we've been talking about these weeks, and that is simply to link, link up with people who are out of our comfort zones, who don't think the way we do, who don't like the things that we like, who don't believe the things that we believe. Seek out folks that are not in your comfort zone. Now that means some 
intentionality. You're probably not going to do that if you have, um, if you have surrounded yourself just with people who think like you and your life is consumed with people who think like you, there's going to have to be something intentional that you do that breaks you out of what you, uh, what's typical for you. When Betty and I were in Morocco last uh, April, some of you know that we had, a, uh, we had a several agendas. One was to visit some friends, but um, Betty and I have been praying, about, uh, praying for a people group of about two and a half million people that live almost exclusively in, in Morocco. We've been praying for them for eight years. And so we were going to try to find some of the people from this people group if we could. Now our friends didn't have time to spend with us looking, they had their own things to do. And so the only way we could do it, um, we tried to make some contacts that never worked out. And so we're like, we're on our own. We have to try to do this on our own. That meant renting a car in a foreign country, driving in a foreign country uh, that where people don't know our language, we don't know their language, the signs on the roads were not in English, uh, we had a GPS that worked sometimes and not other times, and we had never been to where we were going before, and we didn't know the lay of the land, we didn't know the geography of the country much at all. But I was absolutely convinced that this is what God wanted us to do. And some of you know I'm not very adventuresome. My wife, uh, she'll jump out of airplanes and do all kinds of crazy, crazy things. That's not me. Um, and, but to rent a car in a foreign country, I was willing to do because I believe that's what God wanted me to do. And so we got in this car and took off, and they, the people in that country, they drive like maniacs. It is absolutely insane. Uh, uh, by the time we got back from our four-day trip, I, we, were, we were wound up tighter than a drum. And uh, Betty and I were snapping at each, at each other. The last two hours of our trip, um, we found out that our GPS would not recognize the address of our friends. Uh, it pulled up seven different addresses, and we didn't know where we were going, and we didn't know how to get home. And so we were <laughs> a little bit like this. But it was amazing. You know, we, we just, because we were so out of our comfort zone, we had to lean on the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but if I feel like I'm confident, competent and confident, I don't have to lean into the Lord like I do when I'm, I, I, have, no, I have no help. I can't fix this. I can't solve this. I can't do this. And it was an amazing, amazing trip. Uh, we, went to a, we went to a city that we knew the, the people were near here somewhere, and we, we just prayed God open up some door, and he did. Uh, we never got to meet someone, but we got to meet somebody who had studied the Amazir people at length. He was a professor in a college. We met somebody at a cafe one day who spoke English, and turns out she was engaged to a Moroccan, and he, uh, he said, you know what, the owner of this cafe here where we're eating is, is Amazir, but he said, I don't think he's going to be much help, but I know this professor comes here every day for tea, and uh, he said, we can arrange to meet with him, and you can ask him all your questions, and that's exactly what happened. It was so neat to see the hand of God working in all that, and I, I'm convinced that as we go out into this world, God's going to do things in us and through us that we would have never thought possible simply because we take the risk and we trust God 
and he opens up doors we never would have believed he would open because we're, so busy, we're back in our comfortable place, enjoying the comfort of our home. Just linking up with people who need Jesus. You're going to find some of those folks at where, where you work. You're going to find them in your schools. You're going to find them in the clubs that you're part of. Uh, you're going to find them in the local bars. You'll find them there. Um, how many of you would say you're introverts? I'm an introvert. How many of you are of my kind? All right. A little tip for you. Because um, if you're like me, you, you don't want to talk to strangers. You don't want to talk to people that you're not, you don't know and you're not comfortable with. About three years or four years ago, um, I felt like God said to me, that, that's part of your problem. You need to work on just breaking the ice. And so I began talking to just saying something to total strangers whenever I would have a few moments. So that means the waitress in the restaurant, uh, that sometimes means the guy that's pumping gas on the other side of the island from me. Uh, that means somebody, like uh, last week, Betty and I were in Lowe's, and s a customer behind me was talking with the cashier as if he knew her. We both went out the door at the same time, and I just struck up a conversation with him. I'll never see him again. But because I'm so weak in connecting with people I don't know and I'm not comfortable with, I practice with people that I don't know and I'm not comfortable with, saying things that aren't terrifying, like sharing the good news. And so I would encourage you, just practice speaking with people that, um, that you don't know, that you don't feel comfortable with. Take the risk. Um, see what happens. First one, link. Second one, listen. Listen. Now, I wonder if I had to ask your husband or I'd ask your wife if you're a good listener, how many of your spouses would say, oh, you're a great listener? I wonder. When we do premarital counseling, um, one of the passages that we usually take couples to is James 1, 19 and 18, which says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, for most of us, we function the exact opposite of that. That we are quick to get angry, that we're quick to speak, and we're very slow to listen. And this is the, to, to me, as I look around the landscape of our culture, this is a foundational problem. We get angry at each other, we yell at each other, we're not listening to each other. We're just telling, 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 telling. When I'm doing marriage counseling, this is one of the things that I'm asking spouses. Is your husband learning to, is your wife learning to Listen instead of just tell. And if we're going to, if we're going to engage people that think differently from us, that, that disagree with us, we're going to have to learn the skill of listening. We're going to ask their points of view. This is where it starts, asking questions. Uh, help me understand how you think. Help me understand why you believe what you believe. And a lot of times we just like, what you think is stupid, so I don't want to spend my time listening to you. But do you realize how pompous that comes off? And we wouldn't say that, but by virtue of we're trying to tell all the time instead of trying to listen, not showing respect to them, that their point of view is even, is even valid. Um, Tim, or I'm sorry, Brett Stephens, who's a New York Times columnist, gave an address about a year and a half ago in Australia, the title of which was almost the title of my sermon series. His was called The, um, the Dying Art of Disagreement. 
And in this talk, he said, to disagree well, you must first understand well. Now, how many of you would say that the people in your, who are your political adversaries, and think about the stuff that we're fighting about in the culture, that the people who are your political adversaries, you understand their position well. If you don't understand their position well, in other words, if you could not repeat it back to them and the grounds on which they base their position, you've not understood it well, and you're not going to have a healthy debate. To disagree well, you must first understand well. You have to read deeply, listen well, watch closely. You need to grant your adversary moral respect. Give him the intellectual benefit of doubt. Have sympathy for his motives and participate empathetically with his line of reasoning. And you need to allow for the possibility that you might yet be persuaded of what he has to say. Now, hang your hat on that last line for just a minute. I've had a suspicion for many years that the reason that some of us as Christians, and including me here, don't debate well is because we think, uh, people who have different beliefs than we do, we don't want to let them talk too much to us because maybe we're not that confident that we'll stick with our belief. Is that possible? Is it possible that we won't have a discussion with somebody who thinks differently than us simply because we don't want to risk the possibility that we might be convinced that we are, after all, wrong and they are right? You see, I, I'm, I, I'm of the conviction that, as, as it seems like in American Christianity, we have become less and less interested in engaging, the culture less and less interested in engaging people who think differently than us, in part because our faith is getting sh more and more shallow. And brothers and sisters, that is a fundamental, fundamental problem that only we can address. See, in America, it is easy to be a Christian. Would you agree with that? In America, it is easy to be a Christian. Do you know why people who, who live the Christian life in a place where it's very costly to be a Christian, do you know why their faith is strong? Because it's been tested. Do you know why your faith might not be strong? Because it hasn't been tested. And part of the problem might be that we just keep away from people that might say things that we wouldn't agree with we don't want to hear them talk to us that way. We don't want to hear them try to push us off our position, and we're just scared we might buckle under the pressure. I think that reveals something that God might want us to address. Keith, do you really want your faith to be so flimsy that you can't have a conversation with somebody who disagrees with you lest you buckle? Really? Maybe it's more and more important, Keith, that you get with people who disagree with you so that in the process of having those kinds of conversations, you might end up saying, I don't know, but I'll find out. And just that having to find out stretches you, develops you, nourishes your faith so that the next time it is stronger, it is better grounded, you do have more to turn to in the scriptures and in life. Third, learn. 
things. So link up with people across the bridge, listen to them, and learn about them. We can learn uh, from them as we listen to them, but I'm talking about learning about the kinds of people that are out there in general, learning the culture. Now, Jesus, when he came to earth, he didn't have to learn in the sense that um, he knew what people were like. He had to learn in terms of experience, but he was, after all, the son of God. He, the Bible says that he knew what was in a person. He knew how they thought. He knew their propensity for sin and wickedness. He knew their, their hopes and aspirations and dreams. He didn't have to learn in that sense. But as you listen to the Apostle Paul, for example, he was a man who, was, who understood the culture of his day, who, who was widely read. He didn't just read Christian literature. Titus chapter 1, verse 12 says that he, he, he references a Crete, C-R-E-T-E, from the island of Crete. It references a Cretan prophet. He knew other literature. He read other pieces. <clears throat> He got to Athens in Acts chapter 17, and he has this wide-ranging conversation with people who were on the cutting edge of their philosophical thoughts of the day. They would gather there in the Areopagus on, <coughs> in Athens, uh, Mars Hill, and talk about what was coming down the pike, the latest, uh, greatest philosophies, and Paul could converse with them. He, he, he could talk their talk. It's a great thing to know your Bible well. It's a great thing to read Christian books. But do you know about the people that you work with? Do you understand how they think? Do you understand what's important to them? Because you should. These are, after all, the people you should be pitching our tents with. Learn. And lastly, love. What do I mean by that? Ultimately, we're going to have to talk to people about what we believe. Ultimately, we're going to have to disagree with them about some things that we think are really important. How do you do that? What's Paul say in Ephesians 4.15? Speaking the, speaking the truth in love. We can speak the truth and not do it lovingly, and we can profess our love for people without speaking the truth that they so desperately need. At some point, we're going to have to say the truth that they're broken people, and that they need a Savior who came to mend them. We're going to have to talk about things that um, may fly in the face of their worldview. How do we do that? We do it, first of all, calm, quiet. Uh, when you call people morons on social media, that ain't that. That's not what it looks like. Uh, when we demean people as if their point of view is stupid and uh, illogical, it doesn't do that. Calm, quiet response, humility. Uh, listen, no one wins a debate by stumping his opponent. We win debates by stimulating people to think. We don't win debates. Uh, now, don't misunderstand me. If, if, you're doing a <clears throat> if you're involved in a televised debate and people are watching, People will decide whether or not you debated, uh, won the debate by how well you present yourself. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about how can we one-on-one -on -one be persuasive to people who desperately need to know and believe what we know and believe. We don't 
win, we don't, we don't win that debate. We don't beat our opponent by, by making sure that we have the last word. We win when we stimulate their thinking because later on, might bear fruit we might look like we lost the debate but later on might bear incredible fruit in due time now all of this is done not in our own power but in the power of the lord jesus christ and jesus says apart from me you can do what nothing we like to think oh a few things yeah, nothing um in the run-up to last Sunday's message, I was convicted all over again. I don't know if you remember a sermon I preached back in the spring of last year called Gospel, Gospel-tality, talking about the importance of um, us becoming neighbors to our neighbors and using our homes as ministry bases and so forth. And Betty and I uh, were convicted to, to, to do several things, take several steps out of that message. We never followed through. That was a message right before we went overseas for three weeks. We took an initial step and never followed through. And so the week prior to last Sunday, conviction all over again. And I was so frustrated that it didn't seem like we could get off the dime with this. I thought, I need, I need the Lord to do something. And so after the first service, I came over here. I was going to pray with Barry Yoder and ask him to pray that God would do whatever needs to be done for us to take these steps. Somebody intercepted me before I got to Barry. We talked at length, and uh, by the time we got done, uh, all the pray for you people were gone, and um, service was about to start, second service. And so after the second service, uh, again, didn't get to uh, somebody to pray for me and was tied up with people and so forth. Went over to the office, packing up, getting ready to go home. And as I was getting, coming to the double doors to go outside, Barry Yoder walks in. And I said, ah, Barry, will you pray with me? And I explained to him what uh, I needed prayer for. I'm like, we, we felt God convicting us to invite our neighbors over, and we just never got it done. And it seems like we can't ever get it done, and I don't know what the deal is. And he prayed for me. And by that night, before we went to bed, Betty and I had several dates on the calendar that we had agreed on. And the next day, Betty called her neighbors, and by Wednesday, we had a dinner date lined up. And just a reminder that this stuff, this stuff is, it's not just how, how determined are we. It's a work of grace in our lives. And don't try to do this stuff on your own. Say, God, I, I want to be your instrument on the other side of the bridge. How do I go about it? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to do it with? And let God decide all of that for you. I want to close by sharing an extended video with you, a story about Daryl Davis. <clears throat> Daryl is uh, about 60 years old. He's an African-American piano player. Uh, he's a believer. Uh, you won't see that on the interview, but you talk about living out the kinds of things that we're talking about this morning. Take a look. You know, the first time I met a Klansman, that I got along with <laughs> uh, was, was, uh, was, was on a musical gig. So I joined this country band. I was the only black guy in the band. And we played a place in Frederick, Maryland called the Silver Dollar Lounge. Now the band had been there before. I'd never been there my first time in there. The Silver Dollar Lounge was an all-white lounge, not meaning that black people could not go in. 
but meaning that, that they did not go in, and that was by their own choice. And it was a good choice, because they were not welcome. Racists and alcohol just don't mix <laughs> well. So, yeah, they get fueled up, yeah. and fights break out. So here I was in the Silver Dollar Lounge with this band. And after the first set, we came off the bandstand, and I was walking across the dance floor to go sit down uh, with my bandmates. And this uh, white guy, maybe in his mid-40s, came up behind me and put his arm around my shoulder. And I, you know, I see the band up there, you know, walking ahead of me. I, I don't know anybody here. Who's touching me? I looked around, and it was this guy. He says, man, I really like your all's music. I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I shook his hand. And he points at the bandstand. He says, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you before. Where'd you come from? And I explained, yeah, he did see the band. They told me they played here before, but this is my first time. I just joined the band, you know, within the last month or so. And he says, man, I really like your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Now, <laughs> I, I wasn't offended, but I was rather surprised that this guy had to be in his 40s or something. And he didn't know the origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's style of music. And I wasn't trying to be facetious, but I, I just said innocently, I said, um, well, where do you think Jerry Lee learned how to play? He says, what are you talking about? I said, well, Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play that style from black, blues, and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where that rockabilly rock and roll piano came from. Oh, no, 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 man. Jerry Lee invented that. I ain't never heard no black man play piano like that, except for you. So I'm thinking, okay, this guy never saw Little Richard, never saw Fast Domino, or any number of other people. And I said, look, I said, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a very good friend of mine. He has told me himself where he learned how to play. The guy did not buy that I knew Jerry Lee. He didn't buy that Jerry Lee learned anything from black people. But he was fascinated with me. Because this was a novelty for him. And um, he wanted to buy me a drink. And I don't drink, but I went back to his table and I had a cranberry juice. He paid the waitress when she brought it. He took his glass and he clinks my glass and cheers me. And then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. I asked him, and I said, why? And I was just being innocently, you know, naive. And he didn't answer me. He stood at the table. I asked him again. And his buddy sitting next to him elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. I said, well, tell me. And he looked at me just as plain as day, and he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I burst out laughing at him because <laughs> I did not believe him. You know, I, I have a vast library on books on the Klan. And I've read each and every one of them. And it is nowhere in any of my books does talk about how a Klansman will come up and embrace a black guy and want to hang out and buy him a drink and praise his playing and all that kind of stuff. So I think, okay, this guy is jerking me around. He thought I was jerking him around about Jerry Lee, right. so he's going to jerk me around about the Klan. And while I'm laughing, he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and hands me his Klan membership card. I look at this and say, ooh. I recognize the Ku Klux Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center. So, oh, whoa, this thing is for real. You know, and I stopped laughing. And I gave it back to him. And we talked about the Klan and some other things. But he gave me his phone number. He wanted me to call him anytime I was to return to this bar with this band, because he wanted to bring his friends, meaning his uh, Klanswomen and Klansmen uh, friends, to see this black guy, I'm not sure he called me a black guy, but see this black guy play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. I said, okay. And we were there on a rotation with other bands every six weeks. We, we would reappear there for the weekend. I'd call him on a Wednesday or Thursday and say, hey man, 
Come on down to the Silver Dollar. We know we're there. He'd come. He'd bring Klansmen and Klanswomen, and they would, um, you know, watch me play, get out on the dance floor and dance. You know, they came in regular clothes. They didn't come in their robes and hoods, right? So um, on the breaks, usually I would head over to his tables, chit-chat, and some of them were curious about me. Yeah. You know, they wanted to meet me and talk to me and whatever. Uh, others, when they saw me come in, they'd get up and take off, go to, to the back of the room somewhere. You know, they want nothing to do with me other than just look at me, you know, from afar and watch me play. So yeah, that was fine. That prompted me uh, later to pursue writing a book on the Klan, which I did. And I, I got in touch with that guy and uh, I had him hook me up with the Klan leader for the state of Maryland, the Grand Dragon. Grand Dragon means state leader. And then later on that guy would become an imperial wizard, which means national leader. And I traveled the country uh, interviewing people up north, down south, midwest, west, compiled those stories into my book to, you know, to see what made them tick. And you know, I learned a lot, and they learned a lot. And through the process, a number of them, not all, but a number of them became good friends of mine and gave up that ideology you know, as they got to know me. And I have their robes and hoods to prove it. So yes, it can work. It's nothing overnight. You know, there's no one thing you can say to them, all of a sudden, it's like a light switch. You know, it comes on and boom, you know, there they are. They, they've changed. You know, they had an, an epiphany. No, it's not like that at all. Because, uh, you know, you figure if they've been inundated with this ideology ever since day one, it may take that long to get it out of them, too. And I never set out to convert any clan people. A lot of times, you know, if you see articles on me or things that says, you know, black musician converts 200 Klansmen or something like that. No, I, I did not convert one of them. I was the impetus for a little over 200 people leaving, leaving the organization. They left because they began thinking about some of the things that I had said. And they began struggling in their own mind because some of the things I said proved to be more true than what they were believing. And so they had to struggle. Uh, do, I, do I continue believing a lie or do I turn myself around and believe the truth? Now, as awful as racism is, how much worse people that are estranged from God for all eternity. And you think about the, the gentleness, the, the time that he was willing to put into people. And uh, over time, people began to question what, what they believed. And we can do that, too, with people. And you get to the other side of the bridge, start to listen to them, talk to them in ways that honor them, so forth, learn about them how transformational just those moments can be. We don't have to do it perfectly or well. We have to be there and to serve as God's instrument. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. It's a hope we need to take to a, a world. We're honest. We're like, this world is very off-putting. They think things that we seem, uh, seem to us to be weird, odd, strange, evil, wicked, and we want to keep our distance from them lest we become contaminated. We want to keep our distance from them just so things are comfortable. We like people in our house that think like we do. We like people in our house that talk like we do. We like people in our house that, that can uh, say amen to the things that we say. And yet you, just as you did not live on the other side of the bridge and just kind of keep to yourself, but came and pitched your tent among us. So you call us to do that as well. And to take, as Jesus revealed um, you to us, 
to go and to reveal uh, him to them for your glory, for their good. We pray in Jesus' name.